two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Thank you all. I'm Jeff Melly. I'm the head of research at Barclays. I'm joined today by Lydia Rainforth, who is the Integrated Energy Equity Research Analyst based in London. Thanks for joining me, Lydia. Thanks, Jeff. I'm lovely to be here. All right. Now, the flip side is the Barclays Research Podcast. We usually record this in a studio, so today we're going to try something new um, and record it live here at the Barclays ESG Conference. Those of you in the room um, can use the QR codes on either side of me on the screens to subscribe to the podcast. It's also available in your typical uh, podcast sources like uh, Apple and Spotify. Um, today, what Lydia and I are going to talk about is how ESG investing can better facilitate the energy transition. And Jeff, I think for me that sounds like a pretty provocative start to a conversation that think we can do things better. And particularly when I think about the audience here, we've got several hundred people um, across the audience from investors, from policymakers, from management teams. And as they've all come to New York City to attend an ESG conference, I've got to think that we already think we're doing a lot of good things in terms of enhancing the energy transition. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the framing is uh, provocative. And I think I want to say up front that there may be times throughout this discussion where I'll sound um, anti-ESG. But I just want to stress uh, initially uh, up front to uh, put all concerns <laughs> at rest, that is not the case. Um, we can acknowledge up front, I think, the role that uh, ESG uh, in general and ESG investors in particular have played to date to get us uh, uh, progress that we have achieved so far. Uh, but I also think that there are several emerging challenges to ESG um, and how this uh, movement, I guess, if that's what you'll call it, um, evolves from here to meet these challenges, I think will be central to its contribution going forward. And I am an energy analyst, so I have to acknowledge up front that my vantage point here may be a little bit biased, but I do strongly believe that energy and climate are at the center of the issues facing ESG and will be over the next decade. And from that perspective, I do think ESG investing is already pushing forward the transition. And firstly, the use of fossil fuels and energy transition are the clearest and most common topics that we discuss. And secondly, climate and carbon are increasingly showing up in the financial system. And that's everything from new regulation, proposed disclosures, climate stress tests, and often that is related to the demands from ESG investors. Uh, well, I agree, Lydia. Energy is a, a great uh, foil for this discussion. And, um, and as mentioned, you focus a lot on the energy transition in your day-to-day uh, -day, uh, research efforts. So I'm glad uh, to, to join you here. Um, I want to start with one serious challenge, I think, that's uh, facing ESG investing. And that is how to respond to the emerging political backlash against ESG. Um, I think that it's uh, quite serious, this backlash. I think it's serious enough that it risks complicating further government progress um, that could address issues like climate change and other sort of ES other issues that ESG investors um, are focused on. And I think that what's um, missing in terms of the response from the ESG community is some clarity on the definition of ESG investing and its purpose. I mean, I can see, Jeff, from your perspective in the US that that is an important development. But from my seat in London, the extent of the backlash is surprising and confusing for me. 
So we can uh, take a, a, an example of gas cooking, gas stoves, which was an issue that raised um, quite a ruckus here in the United States recently. We have some states, uh, like New York, actually, uh, which are considering banning new hookups for gas stoves. There's actually some cities that have already uh, taken that step. We also have 20 states that have bans on bans. So they have prohibited banning new gas hookups. What is confusing about that? So has anybody actually proposed banning bans on bans yet? Right. Eventually, uh, too many negatives. It's like I'm back in algebra class trying to multiply all the negatives back, back together. Um, look, I think we saw when uh, an, an official in the Biden administration went so far as hinting that there would be potential steps taken at the federal level to address uh, gas cooking, there was a massive backlash. And you know, we keep in mind that gas cooking represents something like 5% of the typical household use of natural gas. And so I think it's reasonable to ask if the focus on gas stoves has actually ended up proving counterproductive. It's possible that the backlash that this kicked off will actually limit the ability to address other more consequential uses of natural gas going forward. I mean, how you heat your home or heat your water ends up using quite a bit more natural gas than how you cook, yet that's where we had focused a lot of energy and it had created, like, like I said, like, like quite, quite a ruckus. But Jeff, surely this was a response to potential new regulations rather to, than to ESG investing by itself? So, uh, so I think that's true about the specific issue around, uh, that, that I mentioned. But taking a step back, I think that the backlash is really against actions intended to make business or societal change, like associated with climate change, for example, or, or meant to address climate change, uh, through non-legislative means. So in the case of the stoves, it was a regulation that likely or almost surely would not have passed Congress, but that would nonetheless take effect you know, potentially countrywide. I, I, there was no real realistic proposal countrywide. It was just like a hint of a consideration that, that, that caused this. But I think what furthered the backlash was a sense that the motivations were somewhat blurred. So in the background, we all sort of knew that the motivation was about climate change. But there was also this sense that there was uh, health concerns. I mean, I think notably in that case, it was childhood asthma that could potentially be linked to the use uh, of gas stoves. And so it was like a backdoor approach where the health concerns were going to be the piece that facilitated the passage of regulation, but the goal of the regulation was really ultimately linked to climate change. And I think that that blurring of the motivations was part of what kicked up the, the firestorm. I think that the skeptics of ESG, um, they really actively do not want investors or management teams taking costly, and I'll emphasize that, costly steps to achieve what they consider to be political goals, largely political goals that they don't share. Um, and I think this, I take this backlash quite seriously. Uh, I think it's, um, it's increased recently for a number of reasons. One is uh, the energy price volatility and energy security issues that were raised around Russia's evasion of Ukraine. And I think that uh, raised a lot of eyebrows around what kind of energy investments are being made and what motivations do they have. Actually, the volatility and financial assets that we experienced around all of, all of that raised the the specter of, co of costs that are being imposed by virtue of having taken steps um, that, were, that were not sort of mandated uh, to, to address these issues. Um, and, and I think that 
you know, it's, it's, it's becoming more widespread. I mean, I would even point to a bill that actually passed Congress. These days, that is no mean feat. Um, and it, was, uh, it would have prohibited 401k advisors from considering ESG scores when managing their funds. That actually passed. But, it's remarkable that it did. But in terms of the interesting part for me that it's the cost of ESG that you keep referring to. So a lot of the definitions of ESG start with this idea that investing will help influence companies to consider a broader set of stakeholders and think about factors such as human rights, emissions, safety, and then end with the claim that I really do agree with that this means that companies and ultimately shareholders will be better off long run. So uh, I have uh, noticed that as well. Uh, and I think it's premised on a very specific definition of uh, ESG investing. And uh, I'll paraphrase you know, my version of that definition, which is that ESG provides a lens that equips investors and management teams to better assess and cope with a set of emerging risks and opportunities that are linked to sort of issues associated with ESG. I would classify that actually as a very benign definition of ESG investing. I'm not sure that benign is actually the word that I would use. And for me, it's critical. And it's exactly what I look for as an analyst. I want companies to take their long-term perspectives seriously. I want companies to think about the evolving needs of their customers and other stakeholders and ultimately take proactive steps to prepare for a changing world. History is littered with examples of companies where they haven't adapted and they haven't thought that through, and now they don't exist. And the energy world is changing, um, and that means more adapting for the companies, more low-carbon spending, and ultimately, I think that is a requirement for companies to be viable longer term for them. Yeah, I guess I should be um, more specific about what I meant by the term benign, because I certainly did not intend it to be uh, trivial or easy to, um, uh, to, to, to use that lens to, to better influence decisions. Um, I also uh, didn't mean it as not important. Um, what I meant by benign was that, in my mind, it is not, or at least should not, be controversial. So to me, that sounds like old-fashioned investing or managing of a company. In principle, there's nothing that says we need a new framework to consider emerging risks and opportunities, incorporate them in the way we either manage our portfolios or manage our businesses, or both. Um, equity prices are intended to be the uh, discounted present value of all future cash flows. They are long-term by nature. We shouldn't need to force investors to consider, uh, or management teams to consider, long-run outcomes when making their decisions. In principle, I think that's right about the framework, but that ESG framework also makes us think. It codifies and measures risks that don't otherwise get fully considered. And ESG helps us analyze new rules, regulations, and focus management teams on longer-term outcomes and adjust appropriately. And that very much aligns with the mission statement for ESG at Barclays. And it's helped us um, identify new skill sets that we need to incorporate into the department, be that climate science experts, um, deeper policy expertise, and really integrating those insights makes us better analysts for me. So first I would say if the framework uh, is actually necessary to achieve 
the integration of these um, new issues or emerging issues into an, uh, analysis and management of businesses, uh, then I, I would consider it to be a universal good. Um, you'd want, you would actively want your 401k manager to consider these when managing your portfolio. In fact, you'd want every manager of your assets to consider these issues when, um, uh, when managing a portfolio. Uh, I would stress when you said it's aligned with the mission statement of Barclays ESG, I think you meant um, within Barclays Research's mission statement for ESG, which is, of course, different from Barclays as a corporate. Um, as someone who manages a sell-side research department, uh, I love the ESG framework um, in, explicitly because it helps uh, achieve all of the goals, Lydia, that you just uh, laid out. There's a set of uh, new and emerging issues that are, uh, that are more difficult for our analysts to uh, grapple with, exactly because they are new and different from their existing area of expertise. And so we have identified new skill sets that we need to bring into the department to help them integrate that into their uh, investment analysis. And so I, when I say benign, I guess maybe what I should say is that that's a, it is a sensible target and something we should strive for, which is to, it's almost, it's not controversial. We should incorporate these issues in our investment analysis. But we also have to acknowledge what I consider to be an alternative definition of ESG investing that exists. It exists, but if you Google ESG definition, you're not going to find it on, on Investopedia or whatever you're, you're, going, to look, you're going to look at. Um, it, it's less formal. It shows up in the rhetoric, particularly from some very high-profile investors who, who are uh, supporters of ESG. Um, I think it also is the definition that the skeptics have in mind when they think about why they critique ESG investing. And that definition, again, this is my like, sort of loose version of it, is that investors would use their investments to encourage costly steps that companies should take that are potentially at odds with shareholders, but will improve the net effect that a company has on society. But isn't the difference there one of timing? Because I'd argue that carbon emissions have historically been seen as an externality and not considered by stock analysts. And what we need to do is be able to develop a framework that really help, needs to be able to help us think about how to include that in valuations. And we also need to recognize that there are costs to not factoring in those issues as well. Well, I, I think, uh, Lydia, you may be at risk of trying to have your cake and eat it too. So I think that that alternative definition that I proposed is really Another, another term that people use for that would be stakeholder capitalism, right? That's a term that, that um, I'm sure most people have heard. Um, in that, uh, which is a sort of a contrary to shareholder capitalism. So in stakeholder capitalism, shareholders are one of uh, many or several, anyway, stakeholders of a company. And a company must consider um, the net effect of its activities across these stakeholders. That means that there are times when uh, the purely economic interests of shareholders would be at odds with the interests of those other stakeholders. That doesn't mean they're always at odds. And like you said, there are maybe many cases when taking appropriate action today actually is uh, better in the long run for shareholders and for other stakeholders. But I believe that the idea that in the long term those interests always converge is just wrong, that there's examples when those interests do not always converge. And we need to think about uh, what the approach is in those circumstances when, they, when those interests do in fact diverge. And maybe it's my perspective from the energy side, but having seen the pressure on the energy companies 
I think it is important that companies do have the societal license to operate. For me, those companies that are aligned with societal concerns and goals long run should be better performing than those that ignore them and just say, we're going to ignore society goals. And let's be clear, there are a lot of proponents of shareholder or stakeholder capitalism. And the most persuasive argument for me is about the slow moving process of rules and regulations, which basically leaves companies free to pursue activities that impose serious externalities on society in pursuit of profit. And socially minded shareholders can help force companies or help companies think about how to short circuit that process and ensuring sustainability. So I agree that there are some compelling arguments around the stakeholder version. Um, I think it's a very interesting debate. Actually, we did a prior episode of The Flip Side where I had a part of that debate with a law and economics professor. Um, but I disagree that it's always better to be proactive about these issues, at least from a purely financial standpoint. Right. So my favorite example for that is a carbon tax. Um, carbon tax was first proposed in the United States in 1973, exactly 50 years ago. We have subsequently done a half a century of untaxed carbon emissions without, uh, without, you know, w w without any, any sort of action on that. And I think it's clear to me that, at least financially, a company that in 1973 had taken seriously the emerging client science and realized that you know, eventually we were going to be having conferences like this where we're debating what, what to do about energy transition and decided to be proactive then would have gone out of business a long time ago. Right, while their peers willy-nilly uh, pumped carbon in, in, into the atmosphere. And I think the, the key term that you used was short circuit, because that is really where the source of the backlash comes, which is that this is like an end run around, um, around the, what some people consider to be the, quote, right process, which is like a legislative process where rules are imposed and companies are forced to impose that, that the, the pushback is precisely that we're trying to, in, that there's a sense that, we're, that some are trying to convince companies to short-circuit that process to achieve goals that they otherwise could not achieve. Just on the carbon tax, I do disagree that they would have underperformed. The companies with lower emissions, they do tend to be more efficient. They do tend to be lower cost. And I'll use Norway as an example here where the energy sector carbon emissions are a third of the world average. And that's because of carbon pricing. And those companies are some of the best operated in the world, and they are also lowest cost. Well, you know, I guess pushback on that critique I would give one is, I, you know, my reference went went back to, to the early 1970s, and I don't think the technology existed back then to uh, actually make the sort of changes that uh, that you're talking about. But I but I also think it's quite instructive that your example was Norway, which is a sovereign, and. Um, the fact that it was a sovereign rather than a private company that made the kind of adjustments that you're talking about at least is suggestive that at some point in that journey, there was a trade-off between profits and carbon that a sovereign was willing to, um, to bear, but that maybe a private company was not. I'll concede that point for now. Um, but really, I have two objections to the notions that ESG investing has really catalyzed an effective political backlash. And one that this is a US phenomenon. There is really no analogy in EU. And even here in the US, um, it's really, it's not about a convenient rallying cry. Um, skepticism, skepticism about climate change existed here in the US pre the ESG investing 
Well, that uh, is certainly true. I suspect that um, skepticism about climate change has li lasted about as long as the term climate change here in the US. So that's, that part I, I certainly uh, agree with. But you know, I think that um, I think it's important not to underestimate um, the relevance of what, what, what you call a convenient rallying cry. You know, anti-ESG, as blunt and maybe sort of unsubtle as, as it is, and, and, um, uh, and maybe even misplaced, is a lot easier than like picking apart externalities and stakeholder and role of government and role of corporates. And, you know, you summarize it all with this like, in this, in this sort of like convenient, um, uh, you know, sort of a convenient umbrella. And then with regards to the US point, I, I think that that point is taken. It is, it does seem to be mostly a US phenomenon. I guess I'd also say that uh, that's the worst place to have this phenomenon in the sense that the US is clearly a laggard on addressing the issues associated with, with climate change. And actually Europe, where you don't have it, is substantially ahead of us in, in, in addressing the energy transition. But even here in the US, I, I think we need to look at the both sides here. Um, the pressures you cite intensified as the US passed its most comprehensive climate legislation ever in the form of the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, as it's more informally known. And the IRA has really refocused efforts on climate, and it's not detracted from it. And the US is now leading the way for me in what I think we'll probably see as a race to the top for low carbon technology development. I don't think you get that, Bill, and sort of the focus without intense focus on climate from many, many share stakeholders and ESG investors. The net effect is positive, even if the issues um, seem different. So I don't want to detract from the IRA, which was a marquee legislative achievement. Um, and uh, will have long-lasting effects on um, the kind of climate investments that happen. Um, but um, I also think, you know, my focus is really sort of moving forward from here. I think the emergence of an anti-ESG counterweight, I think, makes achievements like that less likely going forward. And I think actually has already had a subtle but real effect on the rhetoric around, around ESG. And I particularly would say, um, so there's some like high-profile investors who had been supporters of ESG, and if you read carefully the way they talk about it, you could sense a shift away from the sort of stakeholder version and more towards the better for shareholders in the long run version. And that's subtle, but it's a real change, and it's and 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 applied across many companies over many years. I think could have a real effect on on what kind of change is forced by by a. Uh, uh, by ESG investing. So for example, is the focus now, how do we make money off of the IRA? Okay, well, that's good for shareholders longer. The bill exists, there's certain subsidies and provisions, et cetera, we can make money off of it. Let's figure out how to make our shareholders happy by exploiting this bill versus taking other steps that are costly that maybe, you know, uh, uh, but that, that also have an a, a effect change, but don't have the same sort of financial returns. I actually, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that I think Clarity of purpose, this sort of, this sort of unclear purpose, um, I think, detracts from the ability to marshal a response to this, anti, um, this emerging anti-ESG movement, which has quite clear, quite clear purpose, actually, I think, and is a, a, a fairly focused. I think that otherwise, it risks the pressure on companies 
changing and moving away from this, like you need to think bigger than yourself and, and, be, and becoming more narrow. And I agree that that shift might happen, but isn't this really mo much more practical that it's come down to the exceptional performance of energy assets over the last 12 months, particularly oil stocks? So money talks, is that right, Lydia? Is that what ACDC said? I do love that song, Jeff, <laughs> and, um, absolutely. And it is, has been that boom in oil and gas prices over the last 12 months um, that has led to great stock performance. And I think that has, to some degree, soured um, sentiment on ESG funds, that particularly those that exclude energy. Before that, I'll be fair, it's been easy to not own energy stocks for the best part of a decade, and you could have outperformed financially and you'd have outperformed on a number of ESG scores on the emissions side in particular. That really changed in 2022. And listed companies generated close to $400 billion of free cash flow in one year. And even this year, um, that number's going to be lower um, at $250 billion, but it's still the second highest year ever. These are phenomenal amounts of cash flow that we're really generating for them. So I do think that's tempered the enthusiasm somewhat here in the US, but I'm kind of surprised to hear that from you. I'm, I'm surprised that you would be sensing that in Europe, you're where I feel like this, uh, this notion that, um, that, that uh, the progress on social uh, front sort of comes with a trade-off seems a bit more well accepted. And Amalance, I think you're right, but I'm also spending a lot more time here in the US. If I think about the big three energy companies in Europe, they are all hosting important investor events right here in the US. And that really does reflect a greater willingness of US-based investors, they found, to still pay for fossil fuels, where you see less willingness still in Europe. So the focus is very much switching to the US space. You know, there were, um, in anticipation of doing this event, I've been reading more closely than usual anything in the press or the um, financial news on uh, energy and energy transition. And there were two articles that I thought were sort of interesting very recently, sort of apropos of the dialogue with investors versus other stakeholders. Um, one is um, some uh, pressure being uh, raised on the Mets organization to change uh, the sponsor of City Field because uh, uh, particularly the New York City public advocate who's been leading this, saying that uh, a city uh, has a, a large role in financing fossil fuels. I'm a Mets ticket holder, so I pay attention to the Mets. That's probably why I was reading that one, actually, uh, more than anything else. But, um, but uh, the pressure on uh, city is no different than the pressure on, lots, on all other banks, um, where the, there's a lot of scrutiny on the um, lending book and the, and, the, um, uh, and the fossil fuel component of that. But it was interesting that this pressure was coming from, from the advocate and activist side. And then uh, just today in the journal, there was an article about Shell and uh, potentially the CEO asking or looking to increase the amount of oil and gas development exploration that they're doing and really explicitly citing a tension between sort of the activist community and the investor community and, and saying that like one was going to be rewarding, rewarded uh, and, or, and or happy with this, and one less happy, it seems to me like you're seeing some, some actually evolution in, this, in the dialogue. I'm not sure that, that they would have said that you know, uh, prior to this big run-up in oil prices. Yeah. And I, I do love those examples, and it actually leads me to another area that I do want to discuss, and where I think you just mentioned it, the dialogue on ESG investing can evolve further, and that is on the amount and type of investment made by energy companies. 
the Russian invasion of Ukraine exposed years of underinvestment, um, some of which has been caused by constraints imposed from an ESG perspective. And as a society, we have been spending nowhere near enough on the energy system. Low carbon spend needs to be three times higher than it is today. And we also need to avoid a disorderly transition. And so oil and gas capex needs to probably be 30 to 50% higher than it is today. So this is one way in which I think on the, we need to think about how ESG investing evolves, and to, particularly in that dialogue, to how do we prevent the chronic underinvestment in the energy system. You know, what's interesting about the investment in oil and gas, or in energy, which has been a, a puzzle that we have spent some time in research thinking about, is that it's remained low despite the extraordinarily high level of profits that you talked about. In any other cycle, that would not have been the case. Um, all of those, all that free cash flow that you talked about is not, it's not getting reinvested, it's getting returned to investors, either in the form of buybacks or in many cases in the form of deleveraging, so paying off debt. And that for me is the motivation for rethinking the approach that markets and ESG funds have taken towards energy. I want to be very clear, this transition needs to happen and we need scale. And so big, well-run energy companies need to be at the front of that. The narrative has changed though from can we do it all with renewables to it being about multiple sources of energy. So we need oil and gas and wind and solar and hydrogen and carbon capture and biofuels. And I think what we're going to see a lot more of is this phase of it's and not or. It doesn't need to be one or the other. We're going to have to have a lot of sources. And I think that's what's going to define this transition over multiple decades to come. So I know I said in the beginning that I might be the person who sounds sort of anti-ESG, but now I'm just going to throw, I'm going to maybe turn that hat around a little bit here and say that's an interesting sentiment that you just expressed, but it is distinctly one that is not widely shared. I could probably name a dozen sources where they would make the opposite claim. I'll pick one, um, the International Energy Agency, IEA. They have a, a well-publicized sort of scenario where they were claiming that there is no need for new oil and gas. Yeah, and the IEA is a hugely respected organization. And the scenario around Net Zero that it published was back in May 2021. And it outlined the changes in demand needed to be compatible with a one and a half degree scenario with no overshooting. The assumptions used prompted the assertion that there was no need for new oil and gas projects. The challenge to that is that this was based on assumptions that for energy demand that are really proving far too low. The real world data is showing a sharp deviation, even in two years, from that pathway already. And so realistically, what we're seeing is a very optimistic view about the way that demand could develop. And for me, we need to avoid a repeat of what happened in summer 2022 in Europe, when the effectively gas was taken away from developing countries we need to make sure this is an orderly transition and that we meet the energy needs of today while ensuring we can deliver the energy supply for tomorrow. But I don't see any evidence of public companies at least reversing the chronic underinvestment that you talked about. And where we are seeing big increases is investment from the Middle East, from the national oil companies that are privately held and run by governments. Um, and that includes tax systems that are designed to encourage investment. Um, as an example, I was in Uganda a couple of weeks ago um, looking at what is the largest project in Africa right now. And the government are working very hard to make it 
basically really credible for companies um, to make it attractive for them on the fiscal terms and also making sure that they can take steps to navigate some serious ESG concerns. But that demand for capital is very much there. We're just not meeting it at the moment. It's just, you know, it's interesting because your example there wasn't a publicly listed Western energy company. And like I wrote something actually with our credit EMP analyst where we looked at new wells in the U.S., and there's a strange pattern where public companies operate the vast majority of wells that are operational, but a huge proportion, in fact, the large majority of new wells are being drilled by private companies. So there's something strange there about the way public companies are reacting. Yeah, and some of that is on the government. Um, for example, we've had windfall taxes in Europe and the UK, which have definitely had an impact on the investment levels. Some of also about the uncertainty over what long-run demand looks like. We simply don't know at this point. And companies are asking for payback on projects for both oil and gas that is much shorter than a decade ago. So fewer projects meet those hurdles. And this is where I think an evolution in thinking about the transition would actually be helpful. We need to encourage the right oil and gas projects to coexist with enough investment in the low-carbon space. So I think one problem with, with this uh, idea of leaving this or, 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 or trying to achieve this through the actions of a set of individual companies is that this is like an extremely complex transition that you're talking about and a very, um, and, and a very complicated issue. But a bottoms-up approach whereby a set of individual actions taken by companies sort of uncoordinated uh, seems to me to be just ill-equipped versus a top-down approach led by policy changes to try to, to try to achieve the same outcome. So I use net zero as an example. That's a topic that I think has come up, um, uh, come up today uh, in, in, in some of the other sessions. So you know, there's like this trend of most or, or maybe even many companies making the, these net zero commitments. But you know, the cost to achieve net zero is uh, very different across different industries and even different companies within the same industry. There's, you, you know, no guarantee that um, achieving net zero everywhere for all companies is actually the right way to spend money to make this so, sort of a transition. That um, leaving it to companies to say, you know, so there's a trend, you have to say, say it, and you have to spend some money to try to achieve it, presumably. Um, but actually, like, some of that money might be better spent in another sector, another industry, where you could make even greater progress. But that's much more about a lack of coordinated policy response. There's nothing about the... ESG framework that forces all companies to respond in exactly the same way. No, I don't, it's true. I don't, I'm not really trying to say it at forcing a company to respond, but what I'm thinking more about is that um, when you're putting pressure through individual companies, particularly uh, public companies, um, uh, that's sort of bottoms up, there's the risk that what happens is we change how activity gets financed rather than what activity gets financed. And I think that's another issue that is worth ESG investors thinking more deeply about, which is that the pressures from ESG are limited to specific financing channels. And I think we want to think about what implications there are from uh, having those pressures, but having them only exist in certain parts of financing. But one of the goals of ESG investing is really to raise the cost of capital for carbon-intensive activities and to really better reflect the environmental impact. 
And certainly I'll acknowledge the willingness to finance fossil fuels is lower than it was a decade ago. But that also includes banks facing regulation and investor questions about scope three emissions linked to their lending book. Isn't that a good thing? So, okay, so first, so my analogy that I'll draw here is to private credit and the leverage lending guidelines. And I think this is a, um, a, an example that I think is quite instructive about the limitations of pressure on banks and public finance. So the leverage lending guidelines for background were instituted by the US Federal Reserve in 2015. They were subsequently rescinded, but are, are enforced more informally uh, e even today. And they prohibited banks from underwriting loans that were more than six times leveraged. And I believe, although it's never formally stated, but I believe that there was an underlying suspicion that, that of leverage, that too much leverage ends up exposing the economy to shocks and job losses, and that we'd all be better off if the most levered companies in the economy were, you know, less, you know, were, were six times or less rather than eight, nine, or ten times um, uh, levered. So what happened? Well, banks couldn't underwrite these loans, but interest rates were pegged at zero for a decade, and investors were desperate for some yield. And economic conditions were really benign, and interest rates were really low, so companies wanted to take on really high levels of leverage. So what'd they do? The companies went directly to the lenders. And so it's also known as direct lending, the, the, the private credit market. So um, private credit lenders just cut the banks out of the system, went and lent the money to the companies at exactly the terms that they both really wanted in the end. And so you saw the private credit market grow from something like 400 billion in 2015 to 1.5 trillion today. And so what changed was how the activity got financed, not what activity got financed. And I think the ESG, the parallel, is that you know, the, the pressures are limited. It's banks and public investment. And if the pressure is too acute on those two channels, there's a risk that the financing just migrates. And there's a bunch of ways that it could migrate. It could go to the private markets. The private markets are far more robust today than they were 10 years ago, for example, both private equity and private credit. It could be financed through cash flows. Companies um, could, could just finance this themselves. I mentioned that a lot of energy companies are already delevering. Um, it could also, you could see specific assets getting spun off into, in, into, into holders that are sort of uh, ESG immune, if you will, right? Yeah, and there is certainly evidence of deleveraging from the companies I cover and financing out of cash flow, but that is only possible because of high profits and cash flow today. And ultimately, for large projects in developing world countries, they still need financing. And we see finance increasingly coming from um, banks outside of Europe and the US, such as China, um, because you've, you're seeing companies not choose not to finance it in the West. And that may come with fewer sustainability-linked ambitions. And so I'm not sure that that evolution is a, a net positive for the planet. Yeah, and I agree. And so what I think is the challenge is to toggle the pressure on the institutions and the uh, investments that, we, that one can affect such that you put enough pressure to affect change, but not enough pressure to push, the, push it off into a different part of the system entirely, where you lose the grip of it entirely. And that is a very difficult balance to strike. And I see a number, like, you know, I saw a number of points about that in terms of the deleveraging that was happening. The Chinese, you know, the, the going to banks outside of the Western system is another example that, that, uh, that I had not thought of. The other issue is asset spinoffs, right? Because if you, if you spin a problematic asset off into a, um, you know, 
I said the term ESG immune um, owner, again, you lose, you lose sort of the, the, the control of that asset. On that front, I'm less concerned, actually. Um, I think there was a phase of companies selling problematic assets, as you refer to them, but increasingly I see investors much more comfortable and companies much more comfortable in accepting those and keeping them in-house with a focus on improving them. And I think we've seen a significant evolution there. So I think uh, it's interesting that you cite that because we recently upgraded a coal company based on a sentiment along the lines of what you just laid out. And I would say we got quite a bit of grief from the ESG community about that upgrade. So I'm not sure that that sentiment has fully sunk in, um, uh, has fully sunk in yet. Yeah, and I can understand that reaction and where that comes from. And we can all want progress on reducing carbon emissions to happen faster than it is. Yet, I think we have to try as financial market participants to incentivize companies to evolve in the right way and to recognize that this transition is a multi-decade journey and work towards really what is the best possible outcome. And I think it comes back to probably the very start of this where there are a large number of stakeholders with very divergent views. All right, well, thanks, uh, Lydia, for joining me. Um, Hopefully we've uh, touched on uh, some of the emerging challenges to uh, ESG investing. These are topics that are certainly addressed regularly in Lydia's own research, as well as uh, more broadly in the ESG research uh, written by Barclays, which spans uh, sectors and asset classes. Um, both Lydia's work and our, and our generic ESG work are available to clients, of course, on Barclays Live. Um, and, um, and thanks again, Lydia, for joining me. Yes, thank you. Great. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the flip side. For more insights on this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com/cib.